Welcome, uh, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Here we are, still in the midst of COVID, and uh, there's a little bit of that theme running through this show. We have uh, certainly some experts in the field in terms of medical staff speaking about where we're at with long-term care in the second half of the show. But right now, I'm really excited to have uh, a city councillor par excellence. Uh, one of our faves from way back on this show, and that's Kristen Wong-Tam. So Kristen, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you very much, and it's nice to be back. So let's start um, right off with the budget, because that was the news this week coming out of City Hall. And uh, maybe just to preface that a little bit, you have worked through... um, some mayors over your days. And uh, it's it's a different kind of environment, John Tory, to uh, Rob. Maybe say a little bit about the general environment at City Hall. What's it like? What's the differences? What are the similarities? Um, that's a wonderful and important question. And I think that for the listeners who perhaps uh, tune in to city politics, uh, you'll recognize that every single year, Uh, you know, the city must uh, pass a budget that is balanced, which means that uh, we are not allowed to carry a deficit. That is just by law. Um, So being able to to strike that balance of ensuring that we can deliver services uh, and make sure that it's delivered equitably continues to be a priority for the city. Um, The major difference, I would say, in terms of working under um, Mayor Tory and working under Mayor Ford uh, is that they just had different styles of communication, uh, largely with respect to Uh, how they were going to go about uh, carrying out their mandate. Um, Their mandate, interestingly, is very similar, the two of them, but the communication style is different. Uh, Rob, um, Mayor Ford, had a much more hands-off approach. He sort of let his staff run the show, where I think John Tory uh, has a more hands-on approach, uh, still empowers his staff to to communicate, uh, but uh, ultimately he wants what he wants, uh, and, uh, and every now and then there is some negotiations. But if he doesn't want to give it to you, he will not. And he controls council very tightly. He controls every single standing committee. Uh, so it really is a delicate balance of trying to negotiate and to make sure that services are not cut, the integrity of the programs of the city are delivered. Um, and I think that John Tory um, is willing to listen. But ultimately, if he doesn't want to give it to you, he won't. And out there in listener land, perhaps there are some folk who don't really understand the power dynamic at City Hall. Is is John Tory or the mayor, any mayor, not just one vote among many? How do they how do mayors exert their control? How does that work? Um, So you're right. I mean, we don't have a a strong mayor system, but the mayor does sway significant influence. So by way of his uh, his power to appoint uh, councillors to committee chairs, uh, and oftentimes these are coveted positions. So there are councillors who uh, will do his bidding. um, And that's the same with with any other mayor under any other administration, whether it's right, left or or moderate. Um, So. Uh, so in order for John to, in order for the mayor to carry out his, his agenda, he must install his lieutenants in all the right places so that they can do his bidding. Um, the, the challenge of that, of course, is sometimes you don't get to have a lot of independence. So if you disagree with the mayor, you may lose your position uh, holding a chair of, uh, of a committee. And we have seen that uh, not, too, not too long ago. 
um, well, there was a rumor that Councillor Pasternak uh, did not do the bidding of the mayor. He misspoke out of the mayor's uh, uh, message box and uh, very quickly uh, he lost his chairship of the Infrastructure and the Environment Committee. It hasn't been confirmed, but it's pretty much the, the, the accepted um, understanding on the second floor of council. That's what happened. Speaking uh, to Kristen Wong Tam, um, a city councillor here about all things Toronto this morning on the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, so, Kristen, um, the budget came down, and as you said, you can't run a deficit, but there was a deficit, was there not? Uh, posited in this budget. Yeah. So, so yes, there was. It's a, it's a bit of uh, to me uh, some moving shells uh, on a table. Uh, so, the city of Toronto did pass a budget, uh, and there's some assumptions made in that budget. Uh, the budget was over, and there's, and there's, and this is the operating budget I'm speaking about, which is about 14 billion dollars. Uh, so, sitting in the middle of that budget was about 650 million dollars of a, of a, of a gap. That's a fresh uh, pressure. And, uh, and there's the assumption is that the federal and provincial government will step in to provide some financial relief sometime this year so we can actually fill that hole. Uh, the, the budget staff um, and the budget uh, team uh, have also come up with a backup plan, meaning that if the federal and provincial government don't come in to backstop that $650 million uh, uh, sort of financial hole, they will defer state of good repair and capital expenditures this year to, uh, to move those dollars around, which means you know, more crumbling infrastructure, delaying uh, essential critical work that needs to be done. Uh, it's not a great solution by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the mayor was pretty confident. He, he recited over and over again that he felt that this was the right approach, that he had um, some type of uh, a view into what was happening at Queen's Park in Ottawa. And he was extremely overly confident that the money was going to come. So we took him at face value um, based on what he said. And, uh, and, uh, and hopefully those dollars will be flowing. So let's uh, go back to the budget. And, and from your point of view, um, hits and misses, uh, what do you think was good that came out of it? What not so good? Um, you know, that's that's a question I think is, is to me, is, it's, it's the million dollar question. In this case, the $14 billion question. Uh, budgets, as we recognize, are, are living documents. They, they outline the values of any family. Every family's got to adhere to a budget. Uh, companies, and in this case, a, a government. And, and budgets really uh, tell you what your priorities are. So the priority of this particular budget was to sort of maintain the status quo, not necessarily grow the, the level of services or not grow the programs uh, that residents uh, rely on. And um, I would say that, you know, in a pandemic year, given the financial hardships that people have endured, we probably should have invested more. I will say that uh, I said this on the floor of council, um, but, um, you know, one thing we we we, we know is that uh, budgets can also time also drive economic growth. And given the job loss, uh, given the fact that living, people are, are living on, on the verge of homelessness, uh, people are going to bed hungry and families are struggling overall with mental health and, and well-being, uh, we needed to put more into that budget. Um, but because of the $650 million pressure, I think there was this, uh, this, uh, this trepidation that, you know, by doing so, uh, we may end up unbalancing the budget even further. It doesn't mean that halfway through the year, we can't uh, necessarily reevaluate uh, because we do get quarterly variance reports will tell us you know, exactly where the money is coming from. And if the money comes in from the federal and provincial government earlier, uh, so if we get it in the, in the first quarter of 2021, then all of a sudden we'll know 
uh, that perhaps there's more room to, to negotiate and grow afterwards. Uh, one of the uh, efforts that you have made over the years, and, and I've been a, a little bit of a part of it at the provincial level, is looking at budgets through a gender lens um, uh, in terms of gender equity. And, and also, I'm, I'm interested in your take um, looking at it that way, uh, but also at, with a queer, um, a queer lens. Um, in your area, obviously, used to be the village, as still is. But um, in terms of LGBTQ2S folk, um, you know, what should we all be interested in in terms of this budget? I really love that question because uh, right before the, the budget was even drafted, the staff recommended budget, I convened a meeting with LGBT uh, leaders, um, many of them running nonprofit organizations and community organizations that serve our community, uh, as well as the leaders from the business community uh, right in the village. Uh, and that meeting was to, to put them in face-to-face -face contact uh, with Saad Rafi, who was writing the, um, the Toronto uh, Recovery uh, uh, Report, basically building a roadmap for the city on how to get past the pandemic and what we needed to do in order for us to do that. Um, so I didn't even need to tell Saad what, what the community needed. The community was there in person to tell uh, Mr. Rafi uh, what they were looking for. And what they were looking for was uh, enhanced uh, supports around food security. Uh, they were really um, uh, very concerned about mental wellness uh, within the community because of the isolation uh, protocols. Uh, there was also discussions of how to provide more supports to small and local independent businesses. Uh, so I think that in this budget, there's a little bit of, of those things. Uh, the difficulty was whether or not it actually will meet everybody where they are. And, and how do you do that only from a municipal point of view, uh, especially when some of these programs um, should be and services should be coming from the provincial order of government because we know uh, mental health supports are, are clearly within the, the wheelhouse of the province, uh, but they have not been stepping up. Uh, we also asked uh, uh, Mr. Rafi around paid sick days. There's a lot of folks in our community that are, are precariously waged. Well, they've seen their, their, their wages cut back um, and they've seen their hours of employment cut back because of the, uh, the, the lockdown recession. And, um, and we also want to uh, reduce the rate of transmission. In order for us to do that, we've got to be able to allow people to stay home when they're feeling unwell. And, uh, and they're not going to do that if they feel like they'll, they'll miss out on unnecessary wages. Um, again, it's one of those items that sit within the, uh, the wheelhouse of the province, uh, and we have been asking for that. But, um, but there are a, a number of things that the city can do, and one of them is to create uh, programs that will allow um, businesses to, to survive. So Active TO is going to be expanding this summer, and I think that many businesses on Church Street will probably tell you that it was the lifeline for them last summer when you were able to take over the sidewalks and the, and the, and the curb lanes to expand for patio expansion. Um, and, uh, and so that was a good um, uh, initiative, which will be continued. And uh, another one is... Uh, lobbying for a small business subclass, uh, which I think is absolutely important. It's been almost seven years of work from my end to try to reform how impact uh, uh, values uh, properties, especially on our high streets. Um, and, uh, and so that work continues. One of the major issues um, in the queer community and in all marginalized communities is housing. We're looking at, you know, encampments uh, around the city, people living in tents and freezing weather, et cetera, um, various, um, you know, initiatives like Khalil's to build little houses and things. We're, you know, what's happening around that? We, we saw the city um, 
entering into an injunction against the small houses, but where do folk go? What's happening regarding housing? That to me has been one of the biggest struggles, um, I think, at City Council as trying to address the housing crisis. And, and let's be honest, it, it existed before the pandemic. The pandemic made it worse when people started to leave the shelters where they were staying in congregate settings, uh, largely due to the fear of the pandemic. So they were so nervous, they just left. And then they, you know, tents were provided to them and they started to stay in, in the parks. Um, and, uh, and of course, we also recognize that without running water, without sanitation, without food or, you know, just your, your essentials, um, you know, it, it becomes even a harsher uh, living environment than probably inside the shelters. Um, so the, the city has rapidly rehoused about 3,500 people that have left the shelters over the past uh, pandemic period. And, uh, and that's quite historic. And I'm not going to say that we've done a perfect job, but I've never seen the city move so quickly to get people back in. Uh, they've also rented, um, you know, dozens and dozens of hotels uh, and they've converted them into shelters. Uh, when you take over a hotel um, as a, for, for shelter purposes, you need to book the whole hotel and you need to be able to build some wraparound services to them so people can have access uh, to primary care, mental health supports, a housing worker. Um, all of that was scaled up in, in 11 months. Um, and uh, again, it's it's not a perfect response, far from it, but it's it's uh, it's something that we needed to do. Uh, with respect to the uh, the injunction, um, just to clarify, the city is uh, you know, and, and you know, it's not like we get to to have a say in how the city solicitor will will determine uh, its ability to uphold the bylaws of the city. Uh, but I can tell you that the city solicitor has clarified to myself and another of other councillors who've expressed concerns on the city's approach is that there is no lawsuit uh, being leveled here. The injunction is simply a request of the courts to, um, to prevent uh, the, the further placement of the tiny shelters in public spaces, whether they be in parks uh, or sidewalks or in public boulevards. Um, and so the city is asking for the courts to, to help them so that they can actually um, enforce the bylaws. Uh, but ultimately, I, even in a conversation I had yesterday with the city solicitor, I was recommending, you know, why can you not initiate, uh, for example, mediation? Um, I think it's much better for us to come together to find a resolution. Even if we disagree on some matters, we've got to be able to come together on some of the core principles that will allow us to advance further. Um, and to me, that was a, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I thought that was a very, fairly reasonable um, suggestion, uh, simply because I, I don't think our, our time is being well used. Um, everybody's time is being well used while we're bickering in court when we, when we should be sitting down and finding a way to work together. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you've just tuned in uh, to Kristen Montam, City Councillor about all things Toronto. Um, and uh, of course, if you're listening on the radio show, welcome uh, to CIUT 89.5 FM, Toronto's last alternative radio station. If you're listening on podcast, of course, you're listening anytime. And thank you for that. I always respond to your comments. So do keep them coming. Um, so Kristen, uh, the other issue that's been top of mind for, you know, uh, lefties, let's just <laughs> put a label on it, um, is is the, the whole uh, issue raised by Black Lives Matter and the, the global uh, demand for looking at a different way of policing um, or looking at the abolition of, the, of policing itself. Um, the city has kind of dealt with this in terms of bringing forward motions, etc. Um, but 
where are we at now? Um, I know the pilot project um, is is a go, but you know, again, um, pluses minuses. What's your view on it? Um, I mean, I, I would love to say that we're we're further ahead, um, and I think that we are simply because a year ago, I don't think that we'd even be having this whole conversation around real policing reforms. Um, but uh, as as one of the the councillors that advanced the motion to uh, to defund and reallocate the police budget by a minimum ten percent, um, I am discouraged that we weren't able to successfully do that. Um, and that was after a big um, a big public outcry. So you're you're right. There was a lot of public momentum. It has largely dissipated. Uh, and uh, and part of the challenge for for folks like myself, uh, councillors who are interested in advancing reform, to have those difficult conversations around reallocation of, of, of limited budgetary resources is that we need the public pressure. So this particular uh, budget debate, um, if anybody had tuned in, was a whole lot of councillors um, who were very much, uh, this, who invest, who are deeply invested in the status quo of policing. Uh, their speeches were largely uh, about how irresponsible it was to even consider um, you know, reallocating 10% of the police budget. And, uh, and there wasn't a huge audience watching us this time around. In June, there was uh, when that debate took place. Um, but uh, but that, all that all the crowds and all the advocacy seemed to have dissipated and, uh, and they, we were left alone, which means we'll also be outvoted, uh, which makes the work much more difficult. Um, and for those who are interested in, in, in real deep uh, reforms, uh, whether you call it abolition or you know you call it reforms, if you're calling about you know alternatives to policing, the 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 call to action is is one that cannot stop. You've got to come back out because without your pressure and without your voice and advocacy and your participation at the table, um, things will snap back like an elastic band to the status quo. So the outcomes from the June debate, which actually uh, I am pleased about, is that for the very first time, we were able to see the police budget line by line. When we moved the motion back in June of 2020 to, uh, to reallocate 10% of the police budget, um, we did this with a blindfold because I've never seen, nobody has ever seen, except for the police service board, none of us have ever seen uh, the actual uh, quantifications and details of the police budget. So for the first time we had that information and that was extremely, uh, very, very helpful. Can you imagine being asked every year to approve a budget of $1.2 billion and not know where those those dollars are going and, and not having a say on how that decision is being made? So that was one of the outcomes from the June debate, which now enables us moving forward to advance this um, uh, this effort to to reallocate police uh, uh, money uh, in a much more I think uh, constructive way because we now are able to look at the document. So for people who care, what should you know we be doing about that to assist you? You talk about pressure. You talk about being there, um, and also uh, you know please you know if it's provincial or federal weigh in because. That's a whole lot of power to have uh, for 1.2 billion of the city's budget. Why is it so difficult to get at it? What are the forces that are playing upon representatives like yourself and others to make that so difficult? Yeah, that's a you know that's to me a, a, another excellent and very important question. A part of it is the narrative around you know policing and safety. So there's this, there's the assumption that the more police officers you have, uniform presence in the street, the safer you'll be. And so that that 
that storytelling continues to weave its way into the debate every time we talk about um, reallocation of police dollars. And, uh, and that comes out uh, because it's being promoted by the police association, which is very powerful. They are very deeply invested in making sure the status quo uh, is uh, is entrenched. And they're also very interested in growing their ranks, right? So the more officers you have, the more you, you are paying your dues. Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes it's very easy for property owners and tenants and, and who have you living in the city to lean into that message and say, yeah, you know what? If I see more police officers, you're right. I do feel safe, but, but, the, the challenge for, for us, and I really think that we need to think about this, is, is, is the social determinants of safety are identical to the social determinants of health. So therefore, if someone has a home or they can live their life free from you know, racist violence or they have access to employment or access to, to education, which gives them a pathway to a career development, that makes them safe. It provides them better health and better well-being. So if we want to be strategic on how we're going to do this, we need to be able to advance the conversation by good data and also talking about, you know, how our lived experience should inform decision making. It is never going to be, it's never going to happen because we had, you know, um, thousands of people marching. There has to be follow-up action that allows us to do the work together afterwards. Um, And I can tell you, uh, it's very, very difficult. Just like Occupy Wall Street, wall, Occupy you know, Bay Street, uh, you can have the protests and you can have the occupation. But if you pick up and leave and you don't stay to advance those uh, monetary reforms or those banking reforms that you're looking for, it won't happen. And what did happen after Occupy packed up? Bay Street got bigger. Wall Street got bigger, the banks got larger, and quantitative easing um, uh, continued uh, into the trillions so we need people to stay with us, uh, even if it means, uh, you know, making some sacrifices and thinking about how you organize differently. And then other folks like myself and, and yourself as lead, community leaders will have to help facilitate those discussions to advance to really good permanent outcomes. I want to just drill down on that because you're so right. And we've seen this and I got um old as dirt now and I've seen it so many times with you know so many mass movements that seem to dissipate um so what can we do I mean um other than having our own study groups and our own action groups and you know having somebody appear at a you know the police board meetings or something where it seems to be all about just let's hire more people of color or let's you know like hire more LGBTQ2 plus people um what else can we do because we and I speak for a broad number we want to do it we there's there's will there but I think there's lack of understanding of how the system works to be really effective yeah, and so I would I would say that there are a number of people who are who are staying in the trenches with us. Uh, you know, community leaders who continue to come to the deputations, who continue to work through the working group. Um, the problem is that they experience what I experience. They're left oftentimes alone. And so even though they're doing the heavy lifting, uh, they're doing it without necessary community care and community support. And we have to be able to get past the fact that, you know, just because someone is screaming into Facebook, that that is a form of activism, not when it comes to the level of government that we're working in. Uh, The corridors, those who roam the corridors of power want you to continue to scream into Twitter and Facebook because they know that means you're not watching them when they vote, when they write up those bills, when they write up the bylaws, you're not here. And so to get deeply engaged and involved, it means that you either join an organization that's already doing that work and you support them. 
There is never going to be the perfect activist. There is never going to be a perfect uh, person that can do everything perfectly according to someone's perfect standards. That just doesn't exist. And if you live in that land, you, you will continue to, to scream into the vortex of social media. But I can tell you there are some excellent, hardworking people who are dedicating their lives and giving up personal time in order for them to advance the, the, the issue around equality and social justice. And they do so in a structured and constructive way with other community members. And even though there are times where they may not disagree with one another, they do find a pathway forward that allows them to build solidarity and movements. And they do this, and I think it has to be, it has to be done with this, you've got to do it with community care and love in your heart. Uh, this is not a one person job. It is a, a people job, meaning a people movement has got to come around and do this. Uh, one of the things um, our church did, and we were one of only two faith institutions to do it, was to sign on to the Social Planning Council letter. But I guess I'm looking for some just real practical suggestions, like other than signing on to letters like that, or, I mean, should we be coming and watching the debates or you know, what practical steps could people who are listening to this take next week, next month? I mean, there's a defund the police organization that's making kind of calls to counselors and things. But I mean, as you know, we all know where most of the counselors stand now. That doesn't seem to be having the desired effect. So practical suggestions just in our last couple of minutes. And again, speaking to Kristen Wong Tam here, uh, city councillor about all things Toronto. Yeah, no, that's so Cherry, one of the, one of the best examples I can give you is probably from my own community in Regent Park. Uh, I represent one of the largest housing, uh, social housing uh, uh, sort of areas in the entire city. Uh, this, is a, this is a neighborhood of, of extreme diversity, but also extreme poverty and need. Um, these folks were feeling completely shut out of City Hall. They just thought things were happening to them. I got elected and became their official back in 2018. I sat down with them and invited them into the building and said, you know, work with me. Let's find out a way to get you the things that you need so your families can be successful. And, uh, and, and we did. And so they've got, you know, millions of dollars of social development plan money coming in. We have a new coordinator for the downtown east for this patch of the city. Um, and that was because they mobilized after understanding how to do it. I think a, hard, a large part of what I've seen now is that people are mobilizing, but they're not following sort of the, the structure of decision making. And so you have to be strategic on where you make those interventions, those acupuncture points, which means you've got to work with an elected official. Even if you don't like us, you have to work with us because somebody needs to advance your voice to council. Somebody needs to stand up and say, this group of individuals has been watching the, the, uh, the debate. They've been monitoring the, uh, the file. They've been going to the standing committees. And, and now this is how they want me to vote. So that has to be done. And it can't be, um, unfortunately, it's, it doesn't work um, if, you, if you do it from the outside. You could still apply the pressure from the outside. And I'm not saying at all, give up your political voice. Never, never do that. That's yours. I don't want to take that from you. But we have have to be able to corral our energies. And, and when that bigger energy comes together, then things will happen, which is exactly what we saw in June when the defund the police movement came about. But it just sort of it dissipated. And we need to be able to bring that momentum back and then to structure it in a way that advances the change through, through the communities. Thank you so much. I wish we had more time, Kristen. We're all out of time. Uh, you've been listening to me, Sherry DeNovo, your host here on Radical Reverend, talking to Kristen Montam, city councillor. So please, Kristen, let us know when there are critical things that we should know about that we can lend our voice to, because we will.
Thank you very much and all the best to you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show, and I'm delighted to have on, uh, for the first time, Kathy Parks, who is part of the Families of Orchard Villa. She's a family member who lost a family member uh, in Orchard Villa, and we're going to talk to her about that experience and uh, her advocacy as well. And then, no stranger to the program, um, or to anybody now, I hope, uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who's going to talk about advocacy. And what's happened since the last time we spoke to her and also what needs to happen so that people in, as I call it, long-term crime, long-term care can be well looked after and uh, families can be well looked after. So welcome both of you to the Radical Reverend Show. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. So Kathy, tell us, uh, uh, tell the listeners about your experience. Why are you here? Yes. Uh, well, I'm involved in this because in um, November 2019, my father entered Orchard Villa long-term care facility in Pickering, Ontario. Uh, we went through about five months of ups and downs. Uh, this is pre-COVID. And then once the lockdown happened uh, in the province of Ontario in March, I was locked away from my father. Um, I had was used to seeing him two, between two to five times a week. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have a phone so that we were still able to communicate, but I wasn't able to see him. And that was really difficult, difficult for him to understand as well. And then in April uh, the 8th, um, there was COVID that came into the home. Uh, we, I actually didn't find out until the 10th. I found out from just researching online myself. And my father obviously had COVID at the time. He went from being very lucid and, and um, happy to uh, not being able to speak at all. And, you know, he was experiencing fever. I was constantly trying to get information. He spent about five days in a state of, uh, you know, fever, dementia, coma, uh, not being fed, not being hydrated, and not being swabbed or tested for COVID until I demanded it. And um, I asked for him to go to the hospital. I was denied that right. I asked to come in and see him. I was denied that. And uh, the day that I was actually going to wait until the night shift and insist he go to the hospital, I got a phone call at noon saying that he had passed away. So it was a very difficult time sort of feeling around in the dark. Um, and a lot of the information that I have now came after my father died. So that led to me during the week that he passed away and the week of his burial, listening to other family members in Orchard Villa and hearing such similar stories to what I had just gone through, I realized there was going to be a massive amount of deaths in that home. And I decided to speak out publicly um, April 22nd, which was the day we buried my father. And that led to, I thought it was going to be a one-off and it actually snowballed into something much bigger and led me into a, a path of joining with other advocates to really start to speak out about long-term care and what, what needs to be changed. And Kathy, uh, wasn't Orchard Villa one of the places that the military went in? It was. Uh, yeah. And what did they find? I mean, what did they report? So the report that came out in May from that, um, that was the home where, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a resident that had been fed lying down and choked uh, and passed away. And there was cockroaches, food being left out of uh, the reach of residents. I know that at the time, um, you know, there was panic among the staff. The staff was running below 50 percent. 
um, the kitchen staff had walked out. So there was no food. They were making sandwiches and the cleaning staff were actually feeding the residents. Um, so, and they actually didn't, I think it was about three weeks they went on that way before Orchard Villa issued a note saying, oh, well, we've now hired a catering company. But from the time of April until probably early May, we don't know what the food situation was like. We know it wasn't good. I can tell you from seeing my father uh, on his viewing, we had a family viewing, very minimal. Um, he was, the, the weight loss was dramatic, dramatic. I had seen him three weeks before and he was like a different person. So I know he struggled and I know a lot of people in that home struggled. And you weren't allowed in. I was not. I, I asked specifically, I said, I will wear every piece of equipment you have. I'll keep my distance. I'll do whatever. Just come in and let me see him. And they said, no, I could not. I ended up actually, um, after that request, the 14th of April, I called the nurse. It was a rotating uh, agency staff nurse that was in who did not know my father, didn't know what his regular state was like. So she didn't know that he wasn't okay. And she let me see him through the window. He, he had a bed right beside the window. And uh, I knew he was dying at that point, which is the day that I asked for him to be transferred to the hospital. And they said no. Okay, before I go to Dr. Stamatopoulos, um, I want to ask you, I mean, I'm sure this is on the minds of every listener who's listening to your story. And first of all, uh, like it's heartbreaking and I'm so sorry. And I'm sorry on behalf of anybody that cares that you were let down and your family was let down, your father was let down in this way. But have you thought lawsuit? Right. So we have actually filed a lawsuit. Um, and I, I think people don't understand how difficult that decision is for a family. Uh, especially in the middle of the emotional turmoil of everything that happened. But what it really came down to, you know, my brothers and myself discussed about um, really was accountability and, and wanting specifically my father named and an answer for his death. So we did actually file in uh, early May and, and that is ongoing right now. And Dr. Stamatopoulos, you're listening to this and it's not the first, you know, you've heard tales like this for months now. Um, you've been on the news multiple times talking about the situation in long-term care. Um, you're one of the prime advocates. We all know you now and know the work you're doing and thank you. Um, so what has shifted? First of all, I, you know, maybe you could talk about the long-term care commission, what their work is, what they've done and, you know, where are we at now? Well, I mean, the problem with the commission and, and not to knock what they've done so far, because make no mistake, we have so much evidence right now of how our government just completely failed these seniors from top to the bottom. I mean, I've still not finished reading Dr. David Williams' testimony, and it's the bombshell report that just keeps going off. There's just one explosive finding after another. And it's like, we knew all of these things were happening. And for months, we've been calling for his resignation. Many public health experts, many advocates, because we've been paying attention to what he's been doing, but to really see it all amalgamated in one, you know, 300 page transcript, and they didn't even cover the full amount that, um, that I know has also been, you know, that has happened. Uh, it's been really upsetting. Um, a, a public inquiry would have been a bit more, <laughs> would have been better. And we all knew this from the outset because it's it's a legal um, body, right? So it's codified in provincial law. It has special powers that commissions don't have to, to gather documentary evidence, to force um, you know, search warrants if need be. And the results are all public and the proceedings, which is not what we're having with the Long-Term Care Commission. We have to read through these transcripts after they are you know, 
published days after the actual interview. You know, an independent commission does not have any of these powers. Uh, the government can pick and choose what they what they provide, what they choose to release. And this has been a big problem from day one, which is why many people have called for an inquiry. Do I have any faith that this government will impact, um, will learn from this commission and actually implement the changes we need to you know, provide a dignified level of care to these seniors? Absolutely not. I have zero faith in this government, which is why, you know, Kathy, myself, and a couple other advocates have been trying to focus on national standards because yes, Ontario is probably the worst case scenario of how wrong things could go during a pandemic vis-a-vis long-term care. <clears throat> but we're also concerned that we don't want to see this happen to seniors anywhere, right? So this is what we need to focus on now, making sure that that we take this opportunity to actually change the system. If not now, when? Seriously, when? This is the worst tragedy we've had in long-term care in Canadian history. And if we don't learn from this and do something meaningful, I mean, shame on all those in charge who have the power and aren't or don't. Uh, speaking right now on the Radical Reverend Show, and you are listening on podcast or on the radio, uh, and thank you for listening, and I'm always interested in your feedback and comments. I always respond to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and also to Kathy Parks, who's a family member of someone who died in long-term care, her father. Um, uh, Dr. Stamatopoulos, uh, you mentioned bombshells uh, in reading uh, some of the testimony at the commission. Can you share with us like what, what jumped out at you? Oh, what jumps out off the page? It was so bad. It was so bad. I mean, there's anything from sending test results of COVID positive residents through the mail. So it would take weeks to get to these homes. And at that point, if you can't properly isolate and, and you know, cohort the residents, then you wonder why these entire homes got engulfed in these outbreaks. Um, and they knew about this. They knew there was not electronic means to update these homes like many of the hospitals are set up. And they didn't even think maybe this is a good time to set up, I don't know, one person whose job it is to immediately contact these homes and let them know they need to start cohorting now. I mean, give me a break. That is negligence. Any way you cut it. Um, improper IPAC support, admitting that they knew that these homes didn't know what they were doing in terms of infection prevention and control and didn't bother to send help and didn't bother to actually hire, oh, I don't know, infection prevention managers at each home like we were calling for them to do. Failure to cohort residents and to transfer them to alternative settings. They even said that they had options of field hospitals, but they didn't have the staff to go with the residents. They had billions in federal funds they could have used to hire the staff. They chose not to. It was an after effect. Oh, you know, too bad if thousands of seniors die. Not worth, I don't know, the, the effort of engaging in a staffing blitz like BC did, like Quebec did. Claiming, and this is probably one of the worst ones, that uh, workers working at multiple facilities, that there was no evidence that that would increase transmission. When this is like the most known fact and was one of the earliest indicators of, you know, being the, the match that lit that wildfire that burned across that sector, particularly in the first wave. Also not accepting that asymptomatic transmission occurred until later in the summer, not mandating uh, masking until April 9th when people in the field were calling for it from beginning of March. I mean, I don't even know. It goes on and on and on. The level of ineptitude and incompetence is frightening, frankly. Mind-bogglingly frightening. Uh, this is a for-profit industry. Um, and I, I'm going to go back to Kathy in a moment. But say something about that aspect of it. Because what we have discovered 
um, is and probably should have known beforehand because you know this was a this has been a problem area for for years before COVID and COVID just made it that much more deadly. Um, was how much money people are making from all of this? I mean, millions and millions of dollars in profits are yeah. coming out of these homes. So maybe say something about the for-profit aspect, Dr. Stamatopoulos. For-profit has to go. I will lay my life on the line for that that claim. I I, I cannot. There, there's nothing I agree more for than eliminating for-profit. Uh, we know that the part of the reason that Ontario was hit so so terribly was because we had the largest share of for-profit across Canada, and because of that, we have seen that these homes operate as private entities. They don't have to answer to the government, they're private business. And then when you have a government in charge that doesn't want to interfere with business generally, right? Their modus operandi is business, do, do what you want. You know, government does something different. Government shouldn't interfere with business. That is generally Premier Ford's stance on life and governing. We knew this. So, you know, there was a reticence to actually intervene and, and do things that they needed to do to properly safeguard this sector because private business, right? Unfortunately, you know, the only benefit to them receiving public funds, unlike retirement housing, is that there was a little more um, rules they had to abide by because they were receiving public funds. But still, at the end of the day, these for-profit providers, and, and time after time, nine times out of 10, of the hundreds and hundreds of families I've spoken to, I've literally only received one complaint about a nonprofit home and one complaint about a municipal home. I mean, the vast majority are for-profit providers and the stories that I've heard are like Kathy's, are like all of the other families affected by military-occupied homes. It is stories that would keep you up at night. It, it, skin curdling, like it, the most upsetting things you'll ever read or hear in your life. And that is just not happening. It's just not happening in the municipal homes, which have been shown to be the, the most superior in terms of not only protecting these residents from COVID, but um, having better staffing ratios, better care ratios, just better levels of care. Uh, that model, which is the closest to you know public long-term care, um, is the model we need to replicate going forward. There's no question about it. The evidence is clear on this. For-profit has no place in care. We have seen these providers on the whole fail these seniors and they didn't just fail during COVID. There is a litany of research that documents the failures well before COVID. We have known this for at least two decades now when Ontario became the, you know, model of for-profit dominance across Canada, thanks to Mike Harris and his work as premier. Thanks a lot to him. Yeah. And Kathy, um, uh, your father who died in long-term care and, uh, and the, the residence itself, um, what has the response been to you? And I mean, I'm sure you were in, in contact with them constantly uh, throughout this ordeal. Um, you know, did they reach out? What, what's, what's been the back and forth there? Well, so I think in the very beginning, because there was no information coming from the home. So we're in lockdown, we can't see them. A lot of people couldn't talk to their family members. Um, we sort of used social media and gathered there and joined. A, I, I created a group, a private group on Facebook that was sort of a, a lifeline for all of us. Because if one person managed to get through on Tuesday and somebody else got through on Wednesday, we all came together and brought our information and shared it. And we started to see ourselves what was going on in the home. Um, and because of that, uh, sharing experiences and then also sharing my, my parents, my husband, my wife has passed away. 
um, sharing portraits and memories. And you know what? I recognize that person. I sat and spoke with them, you know, in January for an hour and sharing stories was very cathartic for all of us. Um, but it also led to a rumbling of anger and frustration, um, which of course then became, we, we will band together as a group. We did actually speak with the, with the commission in October as a group. And I think the most surprising thing out of all of that is how very similar our stories were across the board. That, you know, the people who were starting to take their family members out of the home and send them to the hospital once it was finally allowed, we're consistently getting the story of either yes or no, they have COVID, but COVID's actually not the issue. The issue is they haven't eaten in a very long time and they have not been hydrated. They're so severely dehydrated that they're going into kidney failure. So an organ shutting down and into, you know, they can't speak. So that became uh, something that we became very aware of as a common thread through our stories. And it, I mean, understandably, we were angry. We are angry. And it led us to speak up as a group. And, and families are paying for this. I, I think that the general public who don't have somebody in long-term care don't understand that not only are you paying for it, it's expensive. It's really expensive. Can you talk about that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, to live in a long-term care home. So the cheapest version is four to a room and Orchard Villa had that. So, you know, the ward rooms and we know that they weren't cohorting and we know that there were positive and negative residents together in those rooms. Um, my father wanted to go into a private room. He had been in a retirement home for a brief time before that. But with Orchard Villa, you're not allowed to actually start in a private room. You have to start in a semi-private. So he did and ended up getting along really, really well with his roommate and decided that's actually where he wanted to stay. But you are paying out of pocket above and beyond. Um, you know, it went beyond his CPP income, let's say that. So he was drawing on his savings in order to live there. And um you know, I can even say, I'm thinking about now his roommate, what a wonderful man he was. He passed away the day after my father. And every single person that he knew and was friends with and sat at a table and ate with the people I knew and saw every day are all gone because of COVID. So we're talking thousands of months here. And, and uh, Dr. Uh, get Vivian Stamatopoulos, again, yeah. uh, we're speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show with Dr. S and also Kathy Parks, who uh, family members you've just heard. Um, so, so here we are, the commissions come in. Um, you've, uh, people have talked even to the prime minister uh, and uh, the dust has settled, what's next? What are you doing and your advocacy group, SA? And also um, what's the government response? We heard from Dr. Fullerton about hiring or, or helping more PSWs get training. Is that gonna help? a little too late. <laughs> we needed that a year ago. I mean, give me a break. We lost roughly 4,000 people because they couldn't get their act together sooner. I mean, too little, too late. You only start announcing now that you want to start hiring the thousands of workers once we've already finished vaccinating this sector. So for the most part, the threat of mortality, which is what we were dealing with for the last 11 months, is not there anymore. I mean, where's the sense of urgency? I mean, frankly, this is just an op-ed. This is an ability to show, hey, we have some federal funds, which we're going to have to, you know, return soon if we don't spend them. So let's just start making announcements like we're heroes at the 11th hour. It's too late. Too little, too late. Um, sorry, yeah, I don't know, Kathy, you want to jump in there? <laughs> How you feel about that? No, I totally agree. And, and this is what we were talking about, the, the commission report and the recommend, the interim recommendations when they said back in the fall, yeah. listen, we need to hire more staff now. And they came out and said, we will in four years in 15 minute increments. So disrespectful. So, 
Yeah. Right. And they had the funding and they didn't do it. So, so waiting now, waiting for now doesn't make any sense other than they sort of time it for, for a moment when maybe they need to look a little bit better and um, what none of us are fooled. And, and when we're looking at the number of training that they're talking about, the number of staff that they're increasing, it is paltry compared to even what we're seeing in Quebec. And it's definitely much, much lower than what we need in Ontario. It's about one new PSW to, to a home, I think, at the end of the day. It's laughable. Dr. Stamatopoulos, back to you. A um, couple of things here. First of all, I mean, as you were speaking, I'm thinking you have been so outspoken in the mainstream media. Your message has always been clear and always the same. Um, what has been the pushback? Have you heard from owners of long-term care? Um, ha- have you experienced any kind of blowback on this? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, Yes. uh, And it's always privately, which I think is hilarious because none of these people have the courage to publicly um, try to discredit me or attack me. So they might send private letters to reporters saying, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. So what do I know? And, and, you know, nonsense, sexist, gendered nonsense like that, which is laughable. And the reporters always defend me because they my record speaks for itself. I've been here from the beginning. My message, as you said, has been clear and unwavering. And I do not waver based on what mood I'm in. My, you know, it, it, it's what it is. I know what the change needs to be. And I've been saying this for a long time. Um, I've had some for-profit, ironically, uh, Orchard Villa and a, a new executive there reach out to me to tell me that they're taking new steps and they're trying to change. And, and I don't know um, if that was just because I think a lot of these people are a little afraid of me and my, my Twitter presence at this point. <laughs> um, maybe. I don't know. Um, and then I've also had some, you know, individuals even try to, you know, threaten me with slander and, and threaten my livelihood, which has been the most upsetting and it's all private. And I haven't really talked about this publicly. Um, and I know it's not true because I, you know, they're, they're, this is just angry kind of threats to try to, you know, silence me, but there's no grounding because I, I just would never do anything like that. Um, so I've definitely, there has been a, a cost to my advocacy. There's no doubt about it to my personal well-being, sometimes my personal safety, my professional safety, but but thankfully, I'm in a career where I'm entitled to academic freedom and I'm entitled to my opinion and I'm not, uh, you know, bogged down by conflicts of interest because I have no relationships with the for-profit sector. I have no relationships that would make me advocate one way or another. I, I am I am unbiased in that sense, I'm biased in that I've had my own personal experiences with long-term care and I've been very clear about that. And me and Kathy, uh, most people don't know this, but we share the same lawyer because I too am, am seeking justice. And unfortunately, families have no recourse through our existing mechanisms to actually see justice. So you have to go through civil litigation, even just to get an, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, because you're not getting these from any of these homes. They're so prepared for lawsuits that their first you know, impact is just, we won't say anything. We're never going to admit wrongdoing. We're never going to, you know, just even be human beings and say, we're sorry, we messed up. We'll, we'll fix this. They're so primed now for lawsuits because of their poor record over these two decades and counting that, you know, they don't even give that, that nicety to families, which is why it, even just to get an admission of wrongdoing, we have to go through the courts and no family wants to go through that. Nobody wants to live that life. It's entirely stressful and it wears down on you, but the way our system is right now, there is no mechanisms for justice for these families outside of civil litigation. And that's one of the big things we want to address with national standards. We want to see penalties changed so that you can hit these owners where it hurts their pocketbook. We need serious, hefty penalties, financial penalties 
that will make them think twice because right now written warnings, which is effectively what they get for, for the criminal negligence often that is proved subsequently down the path, just goes unnoticed. It goes with a slap on the wrist, a written warning, a verbal written compliance, and that's it. And that's just not good enough. So that's one of the things we're seeking to change. We have just a minute or two left, uh, and I really want to focus on uh, the upcoming actions that you're taking. Um, talk about Canadians for Long-Term Care and what's on the horizon there. Um, this, this show is airing of, on Monday um, on radio and, of course, a podcast the weekend before and ongoingly. Um, what's coming up? How are you going to keep this action rolling? I met Vivian back in the fall and we, we joined together to create Canadians for long-term care standards. Um, and also we're, we go by Canadians for long-term care. So we did a, an event called um, Broken Hearts, Empty Shoes in Parliament on the Lawn, where we laid out 2,000 pairs of shoes on the lawn and one, shoe, one pair uh, represented four losses at the time in long-term care. So this is a continuation of that. Um, we realized that there's, there's a real risk that you know, once the vaccine once the vaccines go out into long term care, people are going to start looking the other way, and we've been doing that for two and a half decades, and we cannot afford to have that happen. So we need to. We really wanted to keep national standards and our focus on the federal level in the public's eye, keep the conversation going, and also encourage. You know, there seems to be political will on the federal level. The problem is coming up against the jurisdiction issues with the province with the provinces. Um, so we're really trying to encourage that, uh, get Canadians involved and change long term care for the better in the long run. And it comes in steps and waves and things that have to be done. So we decided to start with a, a, an eight part town hall series uh, starting on Tuesday, March the 2nd at 530. Our first guest will be NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And then we've really worked hard to do, um, you know, something different every week to talk to all parties. All parties have been invited. Um, not all parties will be attending, but that's all right. And to really bring in nursing and family and PSWs. And, uh, you know, our very last one will be our mystery show, something really important. And then it'll be followed up by something um, really large and nationwide. And we're in the process of working on that right now. Well, we have no more time left, but I want to thank uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and Kathy Parks uh, for their activism. And do tune in to the town hall if you can. Uh, and, and remember this uh, in terms of jurisdictions. Um, this is a national emergency. The federal government has powers in a national emergency. Um, certainly when thousands of people die across the country, I would consider it that. So let's not let anybody off the hook. Uh, but thank you both for all that you're doing. Until next time on The Radical Reverend Show. Ooh.